Hi everyone and welcome to episode 40 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And before we start, we thought you might like to hear a little podcast recommendation from us, given that we all seem to have a bit more time on our hands at the moment, considering we can't do anything. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we've been listening to another podcast that started quite a similar time to ours mm. called Red Rum. Uh, I know it's a podcast that probably some of our listeners, I'm guessing, already listened to. I've seen them shout out a bit. Uh, but for those who don't, we just wanted to give you a little recommendation. Yep. So as I said, the podcast is Red Rum and it focuses on one case per episode. However, it is slightly different to our podcast in that it is hosted by just one British host. Grace, the host of Red Rum, tells each episode with strong focus on the victim and takes you through the case as it happened to them in an extremely respectful and empathetic way. Uh, Red Rum covers lesser known cases. Many of her cases are from here in the UK, but there are some that are from across the pond as well. So if you're looking for something else to dive into, we highly recommend it. Uh, We've put the Spotify link in the description box of this episode, or you can find Grace's podcast by searching on pretty much whatever you listen to your podcast on normally. All right, let's crack on with today's episode. So today's episode starts in 1992 with an 18-year-old girl called Katie Ratcliffe. Katie was a hairdresser and she lived in Hawley here in England. Usually I try to give you all a bit of background information on each victim in our case so that they are the focus of the case rather than their murderer. Unfortunately, there is not a lot of information out there about Katie, so we are going to have to dive straight into the night that Katie was murdered. On the night of June 6th, 1992, Katie and her best friend went out in Camberley and ended up at the nightclub Ragamuffins. God, this is so weird hearing places so close to home. I know, it's going to get even weirder (laughs) when you kind of hear what happened. It's really, really, really shocking. I had no idea that this had happened so close to where we lived. So in the early hours of that morning on June 6th, 1992, Katie left the nightclub that she'd gone to with her friend and she made her way, presumably, to her home in Hawley. So as me and Sal kind of just indicated, we do know this area quite well because it's where we went to college uh, and it's near where we live. Um, And I have to say, if you read up on this case, you'll read that Katie lived with her family in Hawley, spelt H-O-R-L-E-Y. This Hawley is near Rygate. It's quite close to Gatwick Airport. I'd be very, very surprised if this was true. And this is the Hawley where they did live because it's about an hour's drive from Camberley where Katie was clubbing and about an hour from Farnborough where Katie worked. I think it's more likely that she lived in Hawley, spelt H-A-W-L-E-Y, which is a small village in Blackwater, which is less than a 10-minute drive to Farnborough or Camberley. I'm not just telling you this to flex my local knowledge of the area, but more because it (laughs) is slightly relevant in that most reports state that Katie walked home from the club that night. However, she never made it, and instead she ended up in Farnborough. It would take about 12 hours to walk from Camberley to the Hawley near Gatwick. Um, But if she was walking to Hawley and Blackwater, she'd walk straight through Farnborough and it would take her only about an hour. Right, got you. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning on your side here. Thank you. The first time. (laughs) (laughs) So on this night of June 6th, 1992, Katie and her best friend who were out in Camberley decided that they were going to go their own separate ways and leave the club. It's unclear whether Katie left the nightclub and walked home because some reports state that she did walk and others report that she got a lift. Her ex-partner said that Katie had asked him for a lift home but that he hadn't given her one because he was seeing a new girl. He then said that she started walking. Nobody has ever come forward to say that they were in the car with her that night or that they'd given her a lift. Information of this nature would have been helpful with the investigation that followed the discovery of Katie Ratcliffe's body. 
At 7am on June 7th, 1992, Katie Rackless' body was found in a street in Farnborough. Her body was semi-naked and she had been killed in a horrifically cruel and sadistic manner. She had over 27 stab wounds to her head, heart, chest, back and her vagina. The Hampshire police described it as a Jack the Ripper style murder and they immediately profiled Katie's murderer to be an adult male due to the sexual nature of stabbing her vagina and because Katie had been found half naked. Adding to this, there was a huge amount of overkill with this attack. Katie's body had been mutilated, and this again added to the police's theory that the murderer was a male, as women often use much less force. Katie's sister Joanne and her parents Joseph and Helen were heartbroken and devastated. Crimes of this nature didn't happen in Farnborough, and the police were not particularly helpful either. Well, and also just a completely horrific way to know that your child died, isn't it? Like, Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think there is a worse possible end to someone's life than that Mm -hmm. no it's really really scary i totally agree so the police started their searches at ragamuffins nightclub the one where katie had been with her friend in camberley but as i mentioned a moment ago they didn't manage to track down how katie had gotten from the club to farnborough they interviewed all the men they could find who had been there that night including security guards but their searches didn't lead to any arrests or even any suspects The police released information that Katie's jacket that she had worn to the club was missing and they appealed for anyone who knew where it was to alert the police. Katie's bracelet had also been taken, but the police didn't release this information to the public. Mm. Tragically for the Ratcliffe family, this case stayed cold for five years. Five years? Mm -hmm. God, it's hard to imagine how there wasn't evidence at the scene, do you know what I mean? For someone to have spent such a... It sounds awful to say, but presumably quite a long time inflicting like those wounds on her. Mm-hmm. It's almost quite bizarre that in doing that, they didn't leave quite a lot of their own DNA behind. I know. I, I always think things like that with cases like this. Like it is, I I can't remember if it was Criminal Minds or something like that. It was like a TV program like that. And it was about stabbing someone, I think uh, like more than 20 times. And it was like, just take a pillow and do that action of like stabbing the pillow that many times. Katie's body was stabbed over 27 times. Like that would have caused so much perspiration from the killer. That is so much mm. force. It's so, it uses up a lot of energy. It's a very, very difficult, tiresome thing to do to stab someone that many times. It's just wild, yeah, to me as well, that there was no perspiration, there was no DNA, there wasn't even any like skin cells, there was no hair samples. Um, I mean, there might have been, but the, the Hampshire police were just really, really bad at investigating this case. It just kept going to the bottom of their pile and, and that's why it stayed stagnant for so long. But that just seems really strange because you'd think, as you say, like we live in a very, very safe part of the country yeah. and it just strikes me as really odd that what ostensibly seems to be complete strange danger, which is really rare, as well as like a young female victim that's always garners a lot of like attention and fear Mm. it just seems really strange it wouldn't be their top priority case because a lot of the time as well as we know murders like this it's quite few and far between that they're one-off like the people that commit them generally when you see like this kind of sexual nature it's generally like a fantasy or something that needs to be fulfilled again so it just seems really odd they wouldn't like preempt that and be all over it i don't understand either I'm totally on board with you. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. In all the research and investigating I did into this case, I couldn't find any kind of reasonable explanation. The only thing that I can think of, which will come apparent and clear later, um, is that they were really, really heavily set and focused on finding an adult male. And 
spoiler alert, her killer is not an adult male, but it just to me seems that they have put all their resources and all their time into trying to find someone who matches their profile rather than thinking, right, okay, it's been two or three years now since we've started investigating this. We haven't found anything. We're going over the same leads over and over again. Maybe we should reconsider our profile, but they didn't seem to do that. The whole five years this case stayed cold. It was literally um, because they were looking for one set person who didn't exist. Yeah. So during this stagnant five-year period where nothing was happening with Katie's case, another knife attack occurred in that area. This time it happened in Camberley on June 7th, 1994, exactly two years to the day after Katie had been stabbed and killed. The victim of this knife attack was schoolgirl Anne-Marie Clifford. She was stabbed at her school, Collingwood College Comprehensive, in Camberley. A group of girls walked into the girls' toilets and found one of their peers stabbing defenceless Anne-Marie with a four-inch blade. They rushed out and called for help from a teacher, and Anne-Marie was rushed to hospital. She suffered a punctured lung, but she survived the attack and she was able to explain to the police what had happened. She said that another student had asked her to help her search for a pound coin that she dropped in the bathroom. She said that this student then pushed her to the floor and, with a smile on her face, had produced a knife and was tossing it from one hand to the other while smiling down at Anne-Marie before she'd been stabbed. The student was 14-year-old Sharon Carr. What? So, a girl and 14? Yes, a female 14-year-old, yeah. Okay, that's not what I expected at all. Particularly as I'm assuming this is going to be linked to the first crime. But I shouldn't assume, carry on. (laughs) So, Sharon Carr was taken to an assessment centre while she waited trial, and here she tried to strangle two members of staff. Sharon Carr was an extremely violent and aggressive young girl, The police started looking into her background and talking to people she knew to try and get a grasp on Sharon's character. How, what was like her, um, physical size, like, to be able to try and strangle two adult members of staff? Like, was she quite tall, quite strong? No, I think, I think it's really hard to tell from the photos, but she looks tiny. Like, she looks very, yeah, petite, I would say, very petite. That's weird, isn't it? Mm. You just can't imagine it. No, not at all. Absolutely not at all. Um, so when the police looked into Sharon's background, they found that she was born in Belize, which was known as British Honduras at the time that she lived there. Sharon lived there with her mother, Maria, and her violent father, and the family lived in near poverty. Soon, her mother left her father and she met a new husband, an Englishman, and Sharon and her mother relocated to Camberley in England. When Sharon started school, she initially did very well. She had good grades and made friends on the basketball team. However, Something changed and she became incredibly aggressive. She started hanging out with teenagers much older than her and by the time she had turned 11 years old, she was smoking cannabis daily. 11? God, I just think of 11 as like so, so young. It is, it is so young. It is. Like what what year is that even at school? Uh, You're in year six. Yeah, year six to year seven. Isn't that mad? Year six to year seven, that's crazy. Yeah, like who are the older kids even bothering to like waste their like that sounds wrong but you can't even imagine like an older kid being bothered to give such a young kid drugs can you no like no not at all not at all it's just crazy um so she spent a lot of time out of the house because her home life in Camberley also became violent and volatile once again however this time it was her mother who was doling out the abuse Sharon's mother hit and physically abused her husband and one time even poured boiling oil over him. 
He quickly left the marriage, but the things Sharon had seen in her home had stuck with her. Mm. She wasn't shocked or horrified by her mother's actions, though. Instead, she was fascinated. In an interview with the police much later, Sharon's ex-stepdad described the incident where Maria had poured boiling oil over him and said that he turned around, screaming in pain, and Sharon was sitting there, staring at him and watching his reaction. He said that she wasn't disgusted or scared by the incident, but instead she was calm and mesmerised. Maria was also obsessed with voodoo dolls and voodoo culture, and this was something that her daughter Sharon got into as well. Sharon would often stab and decapitate her voodoo dolls, and soon she escalated these acts of violence onto her neighbours' pets. Their neighbours knew they were a violent family and they became scared of them. Specifically, they became incredibly fearful of Sharon, despite her only being about 11 years old at this time. Sharon roamed free and did whatever she wanted. She committed thefts and assaults all the time, and everyone in Cambly knew she was bad news. She had a pocket knife that she carried around in her shoe, and everyone who knew her knew she was armed with the blade. By the time she turned 12, she'd added to her knife collection by also keeping on her, at all times, her 6.5-inch stiletto blade. So, I guess, as we're kind of talking about her background, I kind of want to put to you, like, what do you know about smoking cannabis daily from from such a young age, an age as young as 11. Like, I know some studies suggest that cannabis use in young ages is linked to psychosis and other things later on in life. But I mean, if the brain doesn't stop developing, I don't think until well into your 20s, does it? So I wonder kind of what was happening to Sharon's brain during this time if she's smoking cannabis every single day and her brain's kind of still developing. Yeah, so I think there's probably no doubt it does have impacts on it. The thing that's quite tricky about studies that, I mean, yes, there is, I'd been like clear links identified between uh, cannabis use and then like later mental health issues, like be that paranoia, psychosis, depression. Mm. Um, the thing that is slightly tricky is that they're not necessarily causal links that have been made. So, for example, if someone, uh, if you could say, okay, right, so uh, people smoking cannabis at a young age uh, go on to have psychosis and stuff fine but what you actually can't say is whether or not it's more that people who have psychosis maybe had very overactive thoughts and like the early stages of it started smoking weed as like a means to to deal with that Mm. or were just more likely to hang around those people if you see what i'm saying it's quite hard to identify yeah any causal inference really between the two things and i don't think it would be fair to say that has been truly established yet because you know you need really random trials you need very long-term studies you need to be able to control to some extent really like people's childhoods yeah yeah, yeah. um and like young experiences and stuff which actually like well it, it anything with that it's just not ethical to do it so therefore it's a bit more difficult to establish these kind of links because yeah you can't start giving children loads of cannabis and just seeing what happens um so yeah i mean there definitely is a link and you're completely right i mean children's brains absolutely do keep developing you know even in teenagers like there's a reason that teenagers are quite reckless and that is because of stages of development and things being like all out of kilter and stuff so yeah i mean it probably 100 percent would have some impact that said as we know like in lots of parts of the world like cannabis is increasingly being seen to be very medicinal mm-hmm. um now it's thc one of the actual ingredients in cannabis that makes people like psychotic or have paranoia and stuff mm-hmm. um so the level of that probably would have had like some sway 
if like you're thinking that might have been affecting her behavior mm. but i think there's it's not possible basically i wouldn't hear this and say okay well she's stabbing people because she smoked weed at a young age yeah, I yeah. Think that that evidence isn't there mm-hmm. um but yeah it's definitely something that like if people are interested at home like there is lots of literature out there about it mm-hmm. um and definitely could have could have well been a factor i'd be really doubtful it's the only one like i think if anything like the violence and things that she's experienced and seen would have probably had a much bigger impact Mm -hmm. okay that makes sense that makes sense so i don't know if you actually know the answer to this so just tell me if you don't and i'll just edit it out um (laughs) but um we kind of heard earlier and in my research i found a lot of really really disturbing information about sharon carr uh I won't go into it, but doing really horrific things to her neighbor's pets. And I know, probably like most people do, that there is a link between abusing animals and then future violence on people. And I just wondered if you know anything more about that and why that is, because I've always kind of heard, oh, like, you know, they they escalated from like decapitating squirrels in the woods to like killing their friend or whatever. Is it to do with remorse? Is it to do with like, what is it to do with basically is what I'm trying to ask. Like, do you know why that link is there? Um, so I think, again, probably like a multitude of factors. I think like, yeah, you could see it as kind of like a rehearsal or um, like animals are much easier to access sort of thing. Like for a child, they're more likely to be able to hurt a bunny than they are a fully grown person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's definitely, yeah, some sort of like, it's a scope to pay, play out like any interests, any fascinations. Um yeah maybe rehearse things they think about doing to humans and then there's a kind of that natural path to escalation uh, I think the other thing that you probably would consider is like a lack of empathy like mm. if you don't feel bad about hurting a human why would you feel bad about hurting an animal like if it's something you're interested in and you're not able to like yeah be particularly cognitive about the fact what you're doing is wrong mm. then why wouldn't you do it okay. um yeah and then I think like ease of access as well I think children playing with other children obviously quite off most of the time they're monitored so much more likely to be left alone with their pet because like why wouldn't you you know you've bought that little animal to be your kid's best friend Mm. um but there definitely is a very established link to the point where even in sort of some cultures and countries where people have less regard towards animals you can like find i can't remember the specific country it was but you can actually find they have like less concern about things like domestic abuse Mm -hmm. so it is very much a tracked thing and to me a link like that kind of suggests like yeah i don't know a lack of a lack of empathy an acceptance of some level of like pain and more a higher tolerance to pain and abuse within society maybe Mm -hmm. i don't know i think like yeah if you read into studies like that you could maybe sort of extrapolate some causes but again i think it's a hard thing to say like i don't know maybe someone has asked a murderer like why did they start off killing kittens as a kid Mm -hmm. um but again I i think it's a hard thing to get like a really clear answer on but they would be sort of the links and the reasons i would suspect okay okay that's interesting thank you for sharing your knowledge All right, so if we come back to 1994 and Sharon Carr is being held and assessed while she awaited her trial for the attack on Anne-Marie. So she's now stabbed one girl in an attempt to kill her and strangled two members of staff. I think they were nurses at the assessment centre where she was being interviewed and assessed. So these two counts of ABH were taken into account regarding her sentencing for Anne-Marie's attack and she was found guilty of both the stabbing and the two attempted stranglings. Because she was a juvenile, she wasn't given a sentence as such, and instead was held at Her Majesty's pleasure for an indefinite period of time. 
She was sent to Bullwoods Hall's Young Offenders Institution, and not long into imprisonment there, Sharon Carr started confessing and describing to anyone who would listen about the things she had done to 18-year-old Katie Ratcliffe. Staff at the Young Offenders Institutions alerted the police that Sharon had been speaking to family and friends on the phone about how she had killed Katie. She also confessed on the phone to how she relived the crime by writing about it in her diary. The police seized her diaries, and what they found was staggering. Sharon had, as she'd admitted, written countless times about murdering Katie. What? I've, I don't know why. I, didn't, I expected this to not be true and her to be bragging about it. Mm. So we'll kind of get into that later about that's kind of what um, her defence ended up using as a argument is that she's just like a fantasist oh. and all that. Um, but yeah, she after the police seized her diaries, she was taken out of the Young Offenders Institution and she was questioned by the police for 28 hours. During this interrogation, she admitted and told three different stories as to how Katie had been killed. Each confession had the same underlying current, though, and that was that she had stabbed Katie continuously in many places on her body. There was no DNA evidence that linked Sharon to the murder of Katie Ratcliffe, only her confession, of which most of the information was readily available to anyone who wanted to read about it. Mm. Her diary entries, although damning and incredibly graphic, could quite easily have been just gruesome, horrific fantasies. Her diary included entries such as, quote, I bring the knife into her chest, her eyes are closing, she is pleading with me so I bring the knife into her again and again. I don't want to hurt her, but I need to do violence to her. I need to overcome her beauty, her serenity, her security. There I see her face when she died. I know she feels her life being slowly drawn from her and I hear her gasp. I guess she was trying to breathe. The air stops in the back of her throat. I know all of her life her breathing has worked, but it does not now and I am joyful. Um, how old is she at this point? So this particular entry was written four years after Katie had been killed, so she would have been 16, 15, 16. Right. So the challenging thing here was that whilst the police did believe that Sharon had killed Katie, it was so hard to imagine that she had done. As we've said, like she was just 12 years old when Katie had been murdered. And as I mentioned earlier, the attack had been so unbelievably violent and forceful. Some of the stab wounds Katie had endured had gone straight through her body. That takes a tremendous amount of force. Katie was 18, legally an adult, and it was hard to imagine a child murdering an adult in such a violent way, especially a female child. Yeah, and just to imagine, like you say, the sheer strength to mean that Katie couldn't have kind of fought her off, but then equally, I suppose, it would be the very definition of kind of being caught off guard in a way, wouldn't it? Because no one would be, like, preemptively defensive if they saw, like, a young girl, would they? Like, Mm. whereas... If you're, you know, if you're a girl walking home at night and you came across a lone guy, you'd probably instantly be a bit on guard. Whereas mm-hmm. actually, if you saw a young girl, it's possible that if anything, you'd kind of open yourself up to it because you might, yeah, I don't know, go in to sort of almost be like, are you okay? Thinking like, why is this child out? Mm-hmm. And then maybe once, yeah, you open yourself up to like an initial injury and then possibly after that, I don't know, maybe it would have been quite easy for Sharon if, say, she'd the first stab had been quite severe mm-hmm. and actually really, like, disarmed Katie, then who knows? But I do agree, like you say, just the sheer strength required, it does seem a bit insane that a child would be able to inflict that. I know. it's. I think you're, I think you're, you're spot on with that. I think it is so true. She probably, yeah, she didn't have her guard up. She wasn't, you know, in that kind of 
fight or flight mode that you kind of get, you know, when you see someone scary, like a man walking towards you when you're kind of walking out late at night. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. I think I think it would have just been that she, yeah, was was disarmed, like you said. Um, I think probably as well, you know, from what we've heard, Sharon has a lot of anger in her. She has this real determination to cause really serious harm and to, and to kill her. And um, I don't doubt that that kind of anger that she had or that kind of like violent tendency in her would have just made her quite strong and quite able to just like overpower Katie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually something else that I don't know is relevant and I'm not particularly sure what age it's true up until, um, but children don't get lactic acid build up the same way that adults do, which is why like you sort of look at kids a lot of the time and they have sort of boundless energy despite not having done like a fitness regime um so like whereas for you and I doing like a very repeated exercise a lot of the time can be you know you like you get sort of like that numb arm and mm. you know or like that feeling of kind of yeah yeah, oh, I really can't do anymore. yeah 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 it's children don't get that um so whilst I still find it really hard to imagine that she'd be strong enough to inflict those kind of wounds the fact that she maybe would have been able to inflict so many could actually be less strange if that makes sense yeah no that does that kind of speaks to the point that I said earlier about if you were to like practice stabbing a pillow or something your arm would get really tired you'd use a lot of energy and what you're saying obviously is that actually it could be possible that she wasn't um her arm wasn't even getting tired so that's why she was able to inflict so many stab wounds because there was no build-up of lactic acid because she wasn't having the same reaction maybe that a adult would have had yeah, exactly. And I mean, it would still be amazing that she was able to make such like deep wounds. But mm. yeah, maybe not so strange that she was able to do quite so many. Yeah. Wow, that's really, really interesting. I had no idea about that. Mm. So other things that I found really quite sickening and um, strange in Sharon's diary entries was that there's quite a clear sexual motive for the murder of Katie. So one entry read... I swear I was born to be a murderer. Killing for me is a mass turn on and it just makes me so high I never want to come down. I enjoyed putting the blade up her. It made me feel powerful. Oh, God. Other entries read, Last night it occurred to me that killing her did me good. Now I know what I'm capable of and I will do it again. She also wrote on June 7th, 1995, three years after the murder, Killed KR. Death by knife wounds and sex go together. Oh, God. It's so, so disturbing. I don't know why. I know, I know it's like, it sounds like a really naive and narrow-minded thing to say, but it it just, it shocks me even more because she's a, she's a young female girl. Like she's a child. She's a female child. I don't know why yeah, it makes me really it's so much more shocked, but it just does. It just kind of, I, I don't know why. I know it's narrow-minded. I, I think it, but I think it's because we can't understand it. Like I think, yeah, male sexual violence, unfortunately has been around for, since like the dawn of time. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm not being like a huge old man hater, but unfortunately that that just is what most violence towards women, that is just who is perpetrated by. Whereas yeah, child violence, really rare, particularly of like a sexual nature, like you say, at a time when, I mean, yeah, she's a teenager. She obviously is at the time when like that is going to be something on her mind, but it just seems really something so horrible, doesn't it? That actually at a time when most girls are thinking, you know, nervously about about love and boys and are sort of very nervously, tentatively exploring that part of life. Yeah. Here's a girl who's already formed some quite extreme um, links in her brain between mm -hmm. sex and violence, which mm -hmm. 
it just, she just seems so young and you kind of wonder i don't know was she exposed to that as a child you don't know certainly no but it just seemed you kind of think how like how has your brain made those links how have yeah how has how has one thing become pre- pleasurable to you yeah. that to the rest of the world you know it's, that's not an innate thing really mm-hmm to find violence sexual is normally something that sort of seems to progress over time and and all of that whereas yeah for a 16 year old girl to be writing stuff like that yeah. uh, it re- it's really alarming and very unsettling yeah it's really really unsettling unsettling is exactly the right word mm. so sharon told the police that the diary entries and confessions were only to get attention and that she hadn't killed katie but so that's a new story though it is a new story yeah so this was yeah. i assume after she'd spoken to her lawyer Um, But her downfall in all of this was in the details that she'd used in her diary and in a separate confession to a prison guard. Sharon Carr had described in explicit detail about one particularly brutal part of the crime that the police had never released to the public. She also wrote about the bracelet she had stolen from Katie. And as I mentioned at the top of this episode, this detail about the stolen bracelet had never been revealed to the public. Oh my god. Sharon was questioned again, and this time she confessed, stating that she had done the killing. The police were convinced that she must have had an accomplice. As we've kind of mentioned, it seemed unfathomable that a small 12-year-old girl would be able to overpower, kill, and drag the body of 18-year-old Katie Ratcliffe by herself. Sharon did name two other boys who she said had sexually assaulted Katie before Sharon had stabbed her, but both boys had alibis and were eliminated from the investigation. She was taken to trial in March 1997, but despite her previous confessions, at the trial, Sharon pled not guilty and refused to give evidence. Were the confessions deemed admissible? Yeah, they were, but it was just used as evidence against her. It didn't kind of coerce her or not coerce her, but do you know what I mean? It didn't kind of... They said to her, obviously, if you plead guilty, we'll give you a lesser sentence and we'll, you know, use that mm. to mitigate your sentence. But she didn't she didn't want to. She wanted to plead not guilty and go through the trial, which is really, really devastating for Katie's family. Um because yeah, awful. all the details then were out there in the ether and um they had to listen to all of it and they had to listen to the medical examiner talk about the varying stab wounds and the un- other kind of assaults that her her body had suffered. So yeah, it's really cruel, really, really cruel that she'd confessed to it so many times and then when it actually came down to it she pled not guilty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I can't. Uh, So Sharon's defence barrister argued that Sharon was like a magpie and had picked up pieces of information about the case that she had then weaved into her confession to make it seem real for attention. She argued that her client was not a murderer, but simply a disturbed fantasist. Oh, and where's the line? Like, what evidence has she possibly... I know she's a defence lawyer, but that just sounds like a stupid defence. It's like, no, no, she hasn't actually done it, she just dreams about it. And I know Mm -hmm. that there's this crime that, you know, looks a little bit like she's done it. But no, 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 she'd never do that. She'd just dream about it. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, like, you're you're not painting a good picture of your client at all, 100%. No, no, exactly. Like, you're admitting that she's, like, 80% of the way there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. So, for the prosecution, Detective Sergeant Paul Clements, who had interviewed Sharon Carr extensively, stood and said, quote, It was almost as if she was in another world. What sticks in my mind about talking to her was the coldness. Most people that you interview show some feeling as to why they have done what they have done, but with her, there was a complete absence of emotion and reason. The Independent reported that criminal psychologist Gordon Tresler said, quote, This is a difficult case to understand. One can find precedents of young children killing other young children, but in this case it was a child killing someone who was almost an adult, 
This is an extremely dangerous person because she is clearly prepared to kill without an adequate motive. That makes her conduct very unpredictable and very dangerous. She is a great danger to the public. The jury sided with the prosecution and they unanimously found Sharon Carr guilty of murder. She was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 14 years. The judge, Mr Justice Scott Baker, spoke at the trial and stated, quote, The evidence suggests you were not alone when you stabbed Katie Ratcliffe to death. Who the others were and what part they played remains unclear. What is clear is that you had a sexual motive. That is apparent from both the brutal manner in which you mutilated her body and the chilling entries in your diary recording what you had done. Killing, as you put it, turns you on. You're an extremely dangerous woman. Then, her sentence was reviewed by Lord Chief Justice and her minimum term was reduced from 14 years to 12 years. On what grounds? I know, I don't know. So, I really can't find anywhere on what grounds that was done for. I don't know if it was her age. I don't know if it was the evidence, maybe because there was no DNA evidence. Uh, I Honestly, I couldn't tell you, but it basically meant that she was going to be up for parole in 2009. And as I'm sure you can imagine, Katie's family were shocked. They were devastated. They were heartbroken. Um, mm. Helen, Katie's mother, told reporter Rick Lyons that she was horrified when her sentence was reduced. She said, we just couldn't believe it. The whole family was flabbergasted. But life doesn't mean life anymore, unfortunately. The fact she's now eligible for parole brings it all back up to the surface and forces us to think about it again. I don't feel she should ever be let out because she's a psychopath. She's far too dangerous. She didn't show any remorse at the trial. Well, and and that is worth noting, is that, I mean, actually, they've recently changed the law, I think, haven't they, where you can't just keep people inside indefinitely. But that said, parole is parole. It doesn't mean a guarantee to get out. And I do think it's disgusting that her sentence was as short as it was, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would be really surprised unless anyone's convinced they've made a real tangible difference to her state of mind i would be extremely surprised if someone actually has let her out no yeah you're you're right (laughs) you're right she's still in prison even now yeah so um yeah it's kind of crazy isn't it so sharon carr was and still is britain's youngest female murderer i really thought that britain's youngest female murderer was mary bell who strangled two boys in newcastle when she was 11 uh, but turns out she was convicted of manslaughter so that Uh. brilliant title goes to sharon carr um, so where is she now? Like, is there any more? Oh yeah, there's loads like, What more. did she have? Oh, right, okay, sorry. <laughs> oh no, no, go on, what were you going to say? Um, well, I'm just curious, like, what, did she ever say anything at the trial, like, when she decided, like, obviously, I know she retracted her confession, etc., but mm. since then, has she ever spoken about it? I don't know, I'd just be curious to understand more mm-hmm. about, Yeah. Um, she hasn't really spoken more about it. I mean, she's written about it more in her diary. Um, but as we'll go on to see, she's definitely not reformed um, or rehabilitated. So, And she never named anyone to this day who like, might have been there and helped her, assisted her with it. No, she hasn't, which I think is really interesting. She obviously named those two boys. I said earlier that they had alibis. In the reports that I found, it said they alibied each other, which to me isn't really an alibi yeah so i think there must have been some reason because obviously the police and as we heard the judge was absolutely certain that someone else had been there or or 
several other people had been there and i do think that if they genuinely felt that these boys had something to do with it they would have tried to stick them with a conviction because um yeah obviously they were so certain that someone else had been there so yeah no one else has ever come forward that's kind of where the contention comes from whether she walked home or got a lift home because some people are like oh she there's no way that she walked because how does she get from camberley to farnborough well like as we know yes it's a fair walk but it is doable like probably you could get from Camberley to Farnborough in 45 minutes, an hour if you're walking. And I'm not saying that that is something that she, maybe she chose to do, but she would, yeah. she would be able it to do it. It would be an odd thing to do, but yeah, it would be possible. It would be, but if she, you know, she's asked her boyfriend for, a, or her ex-boyfriend, sorry, for a lift, he's obviously said no, he's seeing someone new. You can imagine like in being a bit of a drunk phase, you might just storm off and just start walking like yeah, it's not improbable true. um but then other people and other reports say that she got a lift and that it was the people in the car who had given her a lift um but no one's ever come forward to say that they were in the car i mean obviously sharon Carr didn't give her a lift she was 12 years old so there yeah. were if she was in the car someone else was driving and no one else has ever come forward yeah you can yeah so, due to her age, Sharon Carr's identity had not been made public after her arrest or during the trial, but once she was convicted, the judge lifted the anonymity order, um, stating that it was in the public's interest that she should be named. She was initially incarcerated at Holloway, an all-female prison, but within a year she had to be moved as she posed a huge danger to staff and other inmates. She described in detail how she wanted to kill other inmates and attacked guards whenever she could. So, in 1998, she was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and transferred to Broadmoor Hospital. Yeah, sounds about time. So, at Broadmoor, she was assessed by psychiatrists. At Broadmoor, she was assessed... (laughs) At Broadmoor, she was assessed by psychiatrists and they diagnosed Sharon with a schizoaffective disorder. At times during her incarceration, she had to be put in solitary confinement because she repeatedly cut herself to see if she was real, claiming to the guards that she believed that she was a lizard. From what I've read, it seems that a schizoaffective disorder is like a combination of schizophrenia and mania. So maybe a mixture of schizophrenia and a mood disorder, is that right? Uh, Yeah, so it can be mania or it can be depression. Um, But yeah, it's effectively... People see it as if you see a spectrum of it's not schizophrenia and then bipolar people see it as somewhere in the middle and it's not really that clear cut because it is a separate diagnosis but yeah that it is a combination of both and it can be that people experience schizophrenic symptoms at the same time as uh mania and or depression or it can be that they experience them independently um so kind of interesting to date well up to the point this point in the episode i don't think we've really heard of her coming across as very manic or depressed have we no i I don't think that i i couldn't find anything to suggest there was anything like that either no i mean i don't know if they're and this isn't to generalize it at all but i don't know if they're referencing the fact that she self-harmed but she's obviously saying she's self-harming because she wants to see if she bleeds because she thinks she's a lizard that's the only connection i could possibly see to depression psychosis to me which is yeah schizo part of it yeah yeah Okay, so that's what she was diagnosed with. Um, So during this time, Broadmoor was still a mixed hospital and here Sharon met Robert Lane. Robert Lane was 24 years old and he was sent to Broadmoor after he'd killed his mother in a violent and jealous rage, believing that his mother favoured his sister over him. Oh God, please don't tell me they get together. 
oh, Sally, let me tell you, I cannot even believe that I'm saying this, but Sharon and Robert started a relationship and they got engaged inside the hospital, buying each other rings from Argos. The pair both had life sentences and so they were going to get married in the Broadmoor Chapel by the chaplain there. The rings had been put on order and staff from the hospital were going to collect them from Argos. Uh, But then the wedding was called off after an article publishing their engagement revealed the gruesome details of both their crimes and they both became disgusted in each other. A nurse from the hospital... (laughs) I'm really trying not to laugh because I know this is serious, but... A nurse from the hospital told a reporter that Sharon had been disgusted that Robert Lane had gouged his mother's eyes out and Robert had been horrified at the amount of times Sharon had stabbed Katie Ratcliffe. Uh, The same nurse also reported that their wedding was called off and the rings were sent back to Argos. Well, I suppose everyone has morals, albeit relative. But what I just... I'm not being funny, but what is this? Like, why are they allowed to get married? Why are they allowed to have a life inside Broadmoor? I'm not trying to be horrible about this, but it's like, Katie doesn't get to be married. Katie doesn't get a life. Like, Sharon took that away from her, from her family. Why does she then get to get married by the chaplain at Broadmoor Hospital with, like, her, her uh, the other patients and inmates there as, like, guests at the wedding? I don't understand it. Is it just yeah, I'm I mean, being stupid? No, I mean, you have to sort of probably remove yourself slightly from that notion like i don't imagine that at any point she'd have been walking down the aisle in a white dress with everyone throwing confetti i do hear your sentiments in that it seems very unjust when like you say uh, a girl's whole future is robbed a whole family lost child their friend etc whilst sharon uh, seems to be like living a life i think like on the flip side like broadmoor is a hospital and not like only obviously a lot of people there are incredibly violent offenders but they still have like a duty of care etc um and i think i don't know maybe there's some degree to which like yeah you have to care for these people day in day out and by yeah being their nemesis isn't necessarily the answer to treatment and making them kind of more well people. I think it depends like, if you're seeing these people as just pure evil or as unwell. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think it's right. And I think stories like this are very difficult to swallow. Equally, a lot of the time, I do think people glorify the way that people live in like prisons and, mm-hmm. uh, and like psychiatric hospitals, because actually like for a lot of, for the most part, you know, I think, you know, they do have very few freedoms, much less rights, you know, huge amounts of medication and things. So, yeah, I think it's very difficult. This is a completely bizarre story and I'm not condoning the fact they got married. I'm really shocked that any kind of relationship is remotely encouraged just from the point of view of you just can't imagine like it's A, safe or B, conducive to like any form of recovery mm-hmm. and like treatment. I just can't imagine how that kind of yeah mixing can be good equally if these people just mix every day you can't stop you know you can't keep people in isolation for their entire lives like that is inhumane Mm -hmm. um and yeah i guess i don't know how you stop people forming particular bonds if they're mixing uh well i might have your answer because in 2007 the women's wing of broadmoor was closed and sharon was moved to a different hospital um, she was moved to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. But that still wouldn't stop her forming, like, bonds, do you know what I mean? 
True. Like plenty of plenty of female prisoners, etc., and male prisoners would mm-hmm. end up in like relationships, and that's yeah. yeah, that's kind of like what I'm speaking to. But mm-hmm. that said, I do think it's very positive. I can't imagine why you would have uh, a mixed sex wing when you'd have thought half of these people probably be in there for very violent sexual crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm sure they thought about that. <laughs> yeah. So. In 2009, as I mentioned earlier, Sharon's minimum term of 12 years was up, but she was not released. In 2015, she was moved out of Rampton Hospital and put back into a mainstream prison system at HMP Bronzefield in Ashford, which incidentally I used to work very close to. At Bronzefield, she is categorised as a restricted prisoner, which means that she has very strict security. In 2020, she attempted to have this status downgraded, but this was denied after it was revealed that she was still writing about violent fantasies of killing and hurting her fellow inmates. The High Court judge that rejected her appeal to downgrade her security status revealed that Sharon had written about wanting to murder another inmate by splitting her head open with a flask and then throwing her down the stairs to snap her neck. Fucking hell. Sharon Carr is still in prison and has shown no attempt at reform or rehabilitation. Yeah, I was going to say that you almost find it slightly strange that she was released from, like, a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. Back into mainstream because, prison. Yeah, because clearly, like, whatever medication or program or treatment they've put in place clearly hasn't done a very good job. Do you know what I mean? And I understand there's not an infinite amount of places, but if she's still an extreme threat due to a diagnosed disorder as opposed to just psychopathy then you'd, I don't know, you'd kind of think that they would keep her there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I don't know what the decision was, like why that decision was made. Um, but yeah, she's obviously still got these violent tendencies. I mean, as you said earlier, it's probably very likely that she'll stay in prison for many more years, despite the fact that she's now served just under 24 years in prison at the time of recording this, which is double the minimum term she was given. Yeah. But like I said, I think it... Yeah, I can, if I was like a a family member of a victim, I would find it very painful to hear something like 12 years as a sentence handed out. 100%. But I think you have to have faith that in reality, the prison system does serve in part to keep people safe. And they aren't, of course, mistakes are made, but generally aren't in the business of releasing like openly psychotic people back out onto the streets. And I think you would just have to keep the faith that, they, yeah, she won't be out in those 12 years. That, and thank God in this case, she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Um, And I don't know, did you, is there like any more on the Ratcliffs? Like, does, is there much in the papers about them mm. after this? No, to be honest, not really. I mean, this case was very difficult to research because I wanted to give more information about Katie Ratcliffe uh, and not really focus so heavily on Sharon Carr, but yeah there just isn't that much information about Katie out there and I can really only assume that that's because her family haven't released that much information about her um yeah it was yeah just didn't want to like you can imagine not wanting to engage with it can't you like of course they've just been through the worst trauma in the world yeah and I do find it interesting actually how many families do are able to speak out and things but actually this was just like a a senseless horrific murder it's Mm -hmm. not like they I yeah what there's nothing to campaign against campaign for yeah. and stuff is there like there's no you can't write this wrong or prevent this happening for other people yeah 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 i totally understand yeah there wasn't like some massive 
just injustice or something like the authorities didn't know about any of this yeah i totally yeah, agree and i think normally like when families do sometimes do that is partly because it's very like cathartic and you feel like mm-hmm. you're getting justice whereas i can imagine for the reckless actually they probably just needed to grieve and yeah yeah exactly everyone deals with trauma in different ways totally um and yeah. obviously yeah just in this case they didn't want to i guess yeah relive the the most horrific day of their lives day after day by reading it on the news and reading it in the papers and things like that so yeah um it was a really tricky one to research and you know like i've said it just didn't even feel like a real crime at times i i know i've mm. said it so many times i just find it completely incomprehensible um and the diary entries as well were just just genuinely so, so chilling. And I'll put uh, some screenshots of them on Facebook and Instagram for you all to see so you can just see how bizarre it was. Like on some of the pages, she would just write really normal diary entries. Like I think on one, one of them, it had like granddad's funeral. Um, and then it had another um, entry about uh, one of her friends, I think, or something like that, who had had a baby. And she wrote what, what they'd named the baby. And then underneath it was like all this like, horrific writings about murder and drawings of knives and stuff like that all on the same page and it was just so senseless just so crazy like it just didn't feel real yeah really haunting so thank you guys so so much for listening as always you can find us on social media at infraction.thepod and like I said I'll put up those diary entries on there for you guys to see Um, if you want bonus content and want to support the show then you can do so over at patreon.com and your support means so much to us so thank you very much Um, thank you for joining the link for the Red Rum podcast is in our bio um, and we'll see you next week for another case bye bye